soon after I moved to Maui, uh, Kamala took me snorkeling for the first time. And Maui's a beautiful island, <clears throat> and there's a lot of just gorgeous um, places and landscape, and it's just really pretty unique. And so she was going to take me snorkeling, which I'd <clears throat> done before. Went to the shop, <clears throat> rented a pair of uh, fins and snorkel and mask with prescription lenses and rented them and then got directions from the uh, owner of the snorkel shop, uh, the, the gear shop, uh, where to avoid sharks, <laughs> which, is, which is, did not inspire great confidence in it. But nevertheless, uh, so Kamala said she was going to take me to a place that's called the aquarium. So, okay. So we drove to the end of all the resorts down past Wailea and drove out into the uh, lava field of the last outflow on Maui from a few hundred years ago. And it looks like a desolate moonscape. It's just like this raw lava just jumbled up in a big pile, big piles. And I thought, I didn't, I didn't know where we were. I just thought, wow, somebody didn't do a very good job leveling this place out. <laughs> I was just like, I was totally out of touch with where I was. And uh, so she stopped in the middle of this lava bed and said, oh, we're going we're gonna to go here. And so we could park the car and get out of the car. Kind of looked along the side of the road to where there's uh, a paint mark on a, a water pipe. And we stepped over that and kind of, found our way, and the, the, the trail across the lava bed is not marked. It's just, it has been walked several times, done hundreds of times by people, so you kind of, if you don't look directly, you can kind of see where it is, you know, it's one of those paths. So we started walking, and after 15 or 20 minutes, we were lost. We weren't on the path, we weren't on the path. And this is just, you know, the water's out there somewhere, the mountain's up there somewhere, and you're on the moon. <laughs> it seems like so you know I said okay you stay here I'm going to walk back and try to find the place and find the path eventually I found it and called to her and she came to the path so we continued walking we get out to close to the shore where the water's edge was and she pointed out to me this little well mud puddle <laughs> it was just a little place a little inlet about twice the size of this room really tiny. And she said, that's where we're going. And I was like, disappointed. I thought, this is... Anyway, I was disappointed. So we got to the beach. It's not really a beach, it's just the shore of the little pond. And she said, well, here's where we're going to swim. I said, okay. So I put on the sunscreen and put on the mask and fins and waded into the place. <clears throat> And, you know, got, got to about knee high, and then I just laid down in the water. Because the whole place is only about four feet deep. And I laid down in the water. <clears throat> there were thousands of fish there. Just thousands. In, in, in the most beautiful tropical fish you, you'd seen. And I'd never seen it before. And I was just like... I, I was just so amazed that standing on the shore, even walking in, I didn't see them. I didn't see them. Until I laid down in the water, and there they were. And, and they, weren't, they weren't frightened of me. They were, just, they were just, that was their home. So I was so <laughs> mesmerized and fascinated. I just jumped up and said, oh my, no, 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 look at this thing. Okay, see you later. And I was in, just exploring all the little inlets and crevices and things for a couple of hours just totally captivated. And I realized that as, as now I understand what the sign on one of the, the snorkel gear trucks says, you know, the most beautiful part of Maui is underwater. And it's true. There's a whole life. There's a whole universe. There's a whole ecosystem that's out of sight from standing on the shore, which is beautiful enough, but here's this other place.
Mindfulness practice is a lot like that. Awareness practice, you know, we're, we're looking at our stuff, we're doing our practice, and we're seeing the difficulties and the challenges, and we're seeing, you know, the pluses and minuses, the, the wholesome, the unwholesome. And we make this effort, and, you know, we hear the talks on what we're doing and where we're going and why it's a good thing to do. But unseen by us, as we do this, is the development of qualities of mind that we don't even recognize. We don't recognize that's what we're doing. But as the momentum of awareness picks up and as wisdom grows and as the five faculties mature and come into balance, there's a whole transformation in, I won't say our personality, but certainly in our character that we didn't see happening. It's like a life underwater. Is, something's happening here that we're not aiming for, we're not really aware of, but at some points, at different points and later, it becomes really obvious that there are these really beautiful qualities of personality or character that grow from awareness practice. So I want to talk about these beautiful qualities of awareness tonight. When I say beautiful, the word that, the Pali word that <coughs> describes them is sobana, which is generally translated as beautiful, but it means shining, radiant splendor. Personality trait, shining, radiant splendor. Well, anyway, that's my characterization of it. Because they embellish our life with beauty. Now, generally, you know, we say, oh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And different cultures or different ethnic uh, traditions have different standards or traits or whatever that they consider beautiful. But the beauty of the heart that, you know, of the power meter system, for example, when they get developed, generosity, loving kindness, patience, energy, these are universally recognized in every culture. And so too the beautiful qualities of awareness. So I've roughly um, put them into five <coughs> topics. The first, <coughs> the first is awareness itself. The second is authenticity. The third is caring. The fourth is contentment. And fifth is creativity. And I want to speak about each one of them in terms of the different mental, wholesome mental factors that they comprise. Because when mindfulness as a factor arises in the mind, it is accompanied by 18 other wholesome mental factors every time. And one of them being faith, one of them being equanimity, one of them being non-aversion, loving-kindness, or non-attachment, generosity. But because we're working with mindfulness, we don't see, and often until, not until there's some momentum of, or continuity of mindfulness for awareness, do these other wholesome mental factors become dominant enough, or predominant enough, to be recognized on their own. So in the Dharmapada, the Buddha said, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. Now we know that being aware is not an accident. We really have, we really have to work hard to remember, to recognize, to understand, to value awareness. And then we see that, you know, mindfulness is really not about uh, creating or trying to change or trying to become something else so much as being willing to participate in the life that we have. 
to be able to recognize, oh, this, this is, this is it. And to find a way to come into uh, awareness of it, balance with it, acceptance of it, to stabilize uh, the mind so that we're not in constant reaction to the events of life, and that we really uh, feel it and, and know it at the same time, not caught in just the subjective indulgence, nor the objective distancing. I mentioned earlier that when I was early on at the meditation center in Massachusetts, and meditation retreats were just a year or two, happening for a year or two in the States in 75, 76, 77, there, one, one fellow showed up at the retreat, at a retreat, and as I acknowledged, he was a kind of a portly fellow, and uh, he was the most, appearance-wise, he was the most unlikely person to be on a retreat, because back then we were all kind of hippies and India travelers and people that had that kind of clothing and demeanor and behavior. But he was a sanitation worker in New York City, and he had been given the retreat as a gay birthday gift by some of his co-workers and they dared him to actually go and he did and of course the first the first few days he was a fish out of water he was like what am I doing here it was just not his not his usual either social or (laughs) the place to be but later in the retreat nine day retreat later in the retreat I saw him in what's called the upper walking room and he was he was so into walking, it was like, watching him was like watching a ballet. He was just so careful and so precise. I mean, he was a little, he was dramatic. He wasn't just kind of relaxed walking. He was dramatic. But he was, he was into it. He was really excited, joyful, sensuously into walking. Unlike his usual demeanor. And it it reveals to me how if you practice awareness, you'll wake up qualities of your heart, your mind, that could be dormant for a long time, could have been dormant for a long time. We all have this. We all have this capacity to awaken every part of ourselves, every capacity in the in the heart, in the mind. And yet we just need the uh, permission, the encouragement, the space to not judge ourselves, to not uh, demand of ourselves, to not expect something, other than to just play with life, experiment with your life. And this is really, I, I often think of retreats or even just practicing awareness as experiments just experimenting with what would it be like to be aware of life like this? Doing nothing, resting, relaxing, whatever, anything. Because so much of our life is not about just being at ease with the way things are. It's being productive and efficient and accomplishing and getting and doing and having and becoming. It's not about just being present. So when we talk about awareness as the, 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 the one of the qualities that we just inherit or that grows, I'm talking about really all the five faculties. You know, the faith, the confidence, the uh, excuse me, the the energy, the effort, the interest, the urgency in life, the the willingness, the the awareness, the stability of mind, the non-reactivity of mind, the equanimity, the understanding, all of that. It grows. You know, maybe you haven't seen a great leap in your faith or your sadha or your confidence this week, but slowly you've been working with it, you've been working with some level of confidence that got you here, and while there's plenty of challenges to your confidence in all of them, Probably all of you have felt, what am I doing here? Do I know what I'm doing? And I don't know what I'm doing. And 
And yet, this is the this is the very path of awakening. We don't grow in confidence by just hanging on to confidence, hanging on to some idea we have about practice confidently. It's by practicing and seeing all the doubts that arise and continuing to practice with those with and through those doubts. So we don't we don't come to a stable confidence by just jumping or leaping or holding on to the idea of I, I really believe this. But rather it's practicing in such a way that we expose all of our doubts and continue to practice. Or no, learn how to continue to practice with those doubts because faith and faith and doubt is like this if you if when doubt arises if we you know kind of ruminate and try to figure it out which way should I go and what should I do and is this the right way and does this work for me and does this teacher know what they're talking about or whatever we're caught we're caught in the content of doubt we're not actually being aware of it so you have to back up and say, okay, what am I what is the what am I doing here? Remembering to recognize the present moment. Oh, this is doubt. And when you recognize, oh, this is doubt, and you don't get entangled in the content, and you keep practicing, your your doubt will be answered through practice, not through reflection. So we don't we don't see that this is what's happening. We just kind of think we're stumbling around and feel a little doubtful and don't know really what not, but slowly we're looking at doubt. We're looking at the the way doubt manifests and continuing to practice with it. And so too with understanding. You can listen to all the Dharma talks you want, read all the Dharma books you want, but understanding only comes from your own observation and understanding of what you're observing. That's really where it comes from. Because until we have this empirical sense of this is this is what's going on here, and understand it from your own observation, you don't know. And slowly it grows. I mean, you listen to me kind of pointing to, this is what you're seeing, this is how you should understand it, but that's just hearsay to you. But if you actually practice, you know, you may come to those understandings, or some of them, you'll definitely come to some of those understandings for yourself. This is hearing right view. You know, as the Buddha said, or as Sariputta actually said, um, to to establish right view, the, the right view of wisdom in your mind, you have to hear it from somebody else first. And then you have to develop wise attention to see it reflected in your own experience. That's why we listen to the Dharma. That's why we ask questions. That's why we practice to see for ourselves whether this is so. One way I understand the um, effect of awareness practice is it is it seems to cleanse our sensory palate. You know how think how you become so sensitive, more sensitive when you're practicing. You know, and food tastes better, smells better, discomfort in the body feels more intense, sounds are more intense. Everything is more intense. It's like somehow our sensory palate, all the senses get cleaned, they get refreshed, they get uh, refurbished so that, oh, we really can see, we really can feel, we really can hear, we can really taste in a way that, you know, we get kind of familiar with or take it for granted or very dulled. And it only happens because, well, we pay attention. That's all. We're just paying attention. That's how it happens. So it takes this kind of diligent training, diligence and training to just feel and appreciate what we're actually experiencing moment to moment in this life. Instead of just letting the chattering mind of views and opinions and hopes and dis- hopes and joys and anticipations and memories tell us what's happening, to actually taste it. <clears throat> As Ryokan, uh, hermit monk, in 13th century Japan wrote, the rain stopped, the clouds had drifted away, and the weather's clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world, abandon yourself, 
then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. So we have this awareness of the five faculties, the activity of the five faculties, gradually developing, uh, coming to some maturity and balance. And as we open to ourself, as we open to the challenges of knowing ourself and see the, you know, uh, the joys and sorrows, the hopes and expectations, the fears, the <coughs> frustrations, disappointments that we inevitably see, we learn how to handle them. We learn how to come into a balance. We learn how to understand that. We learn how to uh, accept. Oh, this is this is the way it is. Not to be not to be entangled in them, but to recognize. Oh, this is a well. This this is one of the facts of life. This is, and there isn't anybody in this world that doesn't experience them. And so it seems so ordinary. Well, it seems like a big struggle for us usually, but it's actually very ordinary to just recognize the facts of life. This experience is just a fact of life, and yet that's not our conditioning. That's not our family or cultural conditioning to just accept that way. It's like to pretend otherwise, to aspire to other things. And this is just very simple and humble, just recognizing this is the way it is. Which brings us to the second quality that I recognize in the development of awareness is authenticity really coming to the truth about ourselves. And the three qualities or the three mental factors of authenticity are modesty, rectitude, which is straightness of mind, and confidence. <coughs> and what this is, is this, this modesty, rectitude, and consciousness is really um, a refined attunement to our inner life. Because we're, we're pretty complex <laughs> beings, and it takes a really steady mind to look at what's going on here and really understand it. This is one thing I used to marvel of when I first started practicing. How could the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, before he became the Buddha, how could he look at what's going on in this mind and understand it as clearly as he did? If I didn't have his guidance and I looked at this mind, I would never come up with the understanding that he did. So I just kind of marvel at like, wow, that's a pretty powerful mind. Modesty, the word I'm using, <coughs> modesty, is acknowledged as one of the two guardians of the world, meaning as we recognize modesty in our heart, and the other is conscience, modesty and conscience, as we recognize modesty in our heart, we recognize, it is the ability to recognize our own inner standards of what's right and wrong, or what is wholesome or unwholesome, what <coughs> is uh, authentic to ourself and what is not. And we all have this. And it's not just a cultural, there is a cultural you know, uh, we do have cultural conditioning around what's appropriate and what's, what's uh, right. But actually we all have our own, we all have our own internal sensor also. And as we practice awareness, we become more finely attuned to our own, not just judgments of ourselves or others, but our own understanding of what is right not right in, you know, by anybody else's mind or eyes or judgment, but what, what's right for us, what really fits us. And while we can't always live up to it, we can't always live doing what's right, we know it. And as we awaken to this, this quality, um, we come to, to appreciate our sense of what's appropriate and to value it because it's a, it, 
it for us is a true indicator of what is uh, wholesome and what is unwholesome. And when we develop, or as we develop this sense of propriety and what's right and wrong for us, it's an invaluable asset in protecting us from feeling remorse. Now, I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, sometimes in our practice, we get this personal history review of stuff we've done, things we've said, or things we haven't done or haven't said or should have. And we have a lot of shame, we have a lot of guilt, we have a lot of remorse. We kind of wish we didn't have, we didn't have to live with that memory, or we wish we hadn't done that. And it's painful. We've all said and done things that have hurt ourselves and have hurt others. And as we continue on this path of awakening, we become really finely attuned to that. And it is this quality of modesty that's going to remind us, you know, it's painful. It's painful to feel regret, remorse, guilt, shame. Not because anybody's shaming you, or not because anybody's condemning you, it's because our mind knows it itself. So some people would say, this is, you know, we might like to deny that, and we can't often acknowledge it, but it's true. And you can look in your own mind, you can look in your own heart and see. And as we awaken to our own sense of appropriateness and what is um, right, we awaken to others. We act towards them as we would wish others to act towards us. And this is, and when we're able to do that, of course, then we are walking our talk, our actions speak as loud as our words, and we're living from a place of more authenticity. And it's a challenge, you know, because our conditioning might not support it, our culture might not expect it, but we do. If we want to awaken and stop suffering, we have to wake up to that. So the second of those qualities in authenticity is rectitude, called ujukata, or straightness of mind. And this is a quality that arises in every moment of mindfulness, accompanies every moment of mindfulness. And it is the mind that sees things straight. Meaning, it doesn't, it doesn't put a spin on anything. It just sees this is it. It doesn't spin it as, you know, it's really acceptable when it isn't. It's really okay when it isn't. It's really something when it isn't. It just sees it as it is. And the, the effect, the subjective effect is, we cannot deceive ourselves. You know, we can't pretend it's other than it really is. And a lot of times, you know, we get away with things, or before practicing awareness, we get away with things because we have this tremendous power of denial and rationalization. And we can deny anything. But the heart, you can't, you can't fool the heart. You can't fool the heart of awareness. And so, you know, as we've seen in our own personal history review, when these memories arise, these events arise, where we were not authentic to our own inner sense of right and wrong, even if nobody knows about it, we do. Our heart knows. And we feel this remorse. Now, actually, remorse, regret, guilt, shame, those are painful. Remorse is actually wisdom. Remorse is the understanding, you know what? I did something that was painful, it was hurtful, wasn't very skillful, I never want to do that again. So there's actually some wisdom in remorse. It's when we don't feel remorse and we kept saying, yeah, that was the right thing to do. You know, too bad. You know, then we don't have remorse and there's no wisdom. So remorse is actually wisdom even though it's a kind of a painful realization that we've acted out in a way that caused harm. When I was practicing with Upandita, there was a time when, in my personal history view, there was some very difficult, shameful uh, stuff coming up, behaviors, uh, hurtful stuff, and it was really agitating. Because, you know, 
the hurt others, long, long out of my life, gone, but it was alive in my heart. And I was just pretty tormented by it. And I was just, you know, I was, I was seeing it, but I wasn't sharing it with anybody. And then at some point I just said, you know what, I just have, I have to tell Upandita what's going on. And, you know, the usual, oh my God, I don't know if he's going to like me, he's going to feel ashamed of me, or I'm going to feel ashamed, you know, whatever. And, but I did, I just, I just went in and said, you know, this is what's going on, I'm remembering this, and this is what I did, and this is how I feel, and that, that. And he was very <coughs> understanding. Understanding that when you see this stuff, it's not like confession, but there's something about just letting it go. Letting somebody else help hold it for you, hold it with you. And it's not like you're giving it away, it's not like they're absolving you of your pain or anything like that. But it cleans your heart. It's just say, you know what? <clears throat> and with, with the appropriate humility and you know, understanding that not a good thing to do. So when I candidly told him that this is the way it was, I could see that, or in retrospect now, see that that was the key to ending that suffering. Not that I didn't do it, it's not like that. It's just that, oh, I came clean about it to myself. Not a skillful thing to do. And being able to speak this way, straight from the heart, without, you know, kind of kind of going around corners and trying to make it look something other than it really is. Just go, this is the way it is. It takes a lot of, um, well, awareness and a lot of this rectitude or straightness of mind. And the third of these uh, qualities in this uh, authenticity is confidence. One of the greatest obstacles to our own happiness is lack of self-confidence. When we have a lot of self-doubt, a lot of uh, personal judgments, um, when we are kind of lost in our false hopes, dreams, we have unrealistic expectations of ourselves, or we're expecting more from ourselves than we confidently, or that we authentically have, then we don't feel confident. If we're, if we're appearing to ourselves as we really aren't, if we're embellishing our life to ourselves or to others, we know we're not thin ice. We know what that is. Awareness reminds us, you know, that's not quite right. You know, and, and until we kind of bring our understanding, our self-understanding into alignment with, oh, this, this is the way it is. This, you know, I have these doubts. I have these fears. I have these am- unfulfilled ambitions. I have these, you know, judgments of myself and others. And, then, and as we can open to those, well, this is the way it really is in me, or this in my mind, then we can feel confident because we've seen it. We've, we've checked out all the, cor- all the dark corners and we've acknowledged all the skeletons in our closet, so to speak. And then we can say, I got these skeletons in my closet. Yeah. And if you can accept it, well, I can't say, I'm not going to say that everybody else can accept it, but that's not for them to do. It's for you to do. And as we practice in this way, coming to see our stuff and to accept it, then we stop hiding from ourselves. And we're able to come to a conviction in the truth. So these three mental factors of modesty, straightness of mind, and confidence contribute to walking our talk, acting authentically, being in touch with our inner truth, and being strong enough to manifest it in the world of relationship. Awareness, authenticity. The third quality is caring. Caring, I remember reading Lao Tzu, whatever his book is, Tao or something, 
caring is the shield from heaven against being dead. Caring is the shield, something like that. Caring is the shield from heaven against being dead. Caring has these three qualities or these three um, mental factors. Conscience, generosity, and loving kindness. The conscience now, I've talked about modesty, understanding, feeling, coming to know your own inner sense of right, wrong, and moving into alignment with that. Conscience is understanding who your spiritual community is. And understanding what what you how do we say this? Uh, we, there are those that we care how they think about us. There are those that we care how they think about us and we care how we act in front of them. That's your spiritual community. Who is it in your life that you really care what they think about you and your behavior? Because that's your, that's your community of uh, appropriateness, propriety, and you know, not everyone's the same. There's, there's those that live in, in that section of the world and there's those that live in that section of the world, but you live in this section of the world. And with that community or that grouping of people who value what you value. And when you, when you are sensitive to others in that way, it's not like you're doing what they tell you to. It's you do what will not be seen as wrong or harmful or dangerous or inappropriate in their eyes. But it's your own standard. It's, not, it's your own recognition of who you value, why you value them. So this, this conscience also is one of the two guardians of the world that protects the world from just, well, how do they say it? From falling into depravity. I think that's how they say it. You know, if you don't have a modesty and conscience, you'll do anything. And there's plenty of that in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And so... We all want to be seen. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be valued. We all want to be respected. We all want to be a part of a community. We all want to feel like we have a right to be here and that we're appreciated and that others appreciate us. We're respected and known and we're not hiding. And we all want that. We all want that recognition. And so who is it that can offer you that? in a way that you would really uh, accept, respect, acknowledge that that's a value to you. When we recognize our own need to be seen like that, we recognize that others have the same need. And so this is the formation of a community where you're seen by them and you acknowledge that you see them, that you respect them, that you understand them, that you value them that you accept their place in the unity of things or in the, their place in the world and that you're concerned for their well-being, inner and outer well-being. So in, when, we, when we recognize this within ourselves, we recognize it in others and we act so as not to be a bother or not to interfere with them. I don't mean just to be a bother, but I mean to challenge their sense of propriety or to dismiss their sense of propriety or neglect it. And so it's really learning how to take a protective interest in yourself by caring about others and to guard them and yourself from being disrespected. This requires a pretty refined discernment of what is blameworthy and what is trustworthy. And, you know, a lot of times when we feel on the edge of something, doing something, is it right or wrong with them? You know, we know, but we just don't want to admit it. What's right? And this conscience brings another, uh, another heart into the picture to help us reaffirm what we know.
really this conscience is a fear, but it's a wholesome fear of wrongdoing. You know, some fear is fear of aversion, wanting to get away from, wanting to um, push away. But a wholesome fear is a wholesome fear of wrongdoing, which protects your truth, your integrity. It's wholesome fear. So when we care, as we develop this conscience, as we practice awareness, we will develop, we will become finally attuned to, and did you know, I mean, you notice it. Here we are, you know, Perfectly. A lot of us are strangers to each other when we arrived a week ago. Didn't know each other. And yet, and, and without even talking much, just by how we live together, we come to understand a lot about each other. Just how you go through the lunch line, how you make space for other people in the hall, how you kind of, you know, find a way to all get through the door within a certain amount of time, how you do your yogi jobs together, it's like, that's what we're doing here. We're creating this community because we have a, well, a common conscience, a common understanding of what we're doing here, and we have similar values and similar uh, inner guides as to what's appropriate. Not just because, as I said, these are the rules of the game and this is the format of the retreat. If that didn't fit you, you wouldn't stay. But because you have them also. Conscience protects us from the fear of remorse, blame, chastisement, and retribution. Phew. Okay. (laughs) And really, that's freedom from insecurity. Because when we live with this fear of being blamed, or feeling of being chastised, or retribution, or punished by others, then we really feel pretty insecure. So this conscience is really... um, the foundation for a feeling of safety and tranquility in community. And the second factor of caring is generosity, which I spoke about some yesterday and today. It's a recognizing that (coughs) we all have something to offer. We all have something to offer. We all have a lot to offer, actually. And there's plenty of places to offer. Plenty of people, plenty of opportunities, and it doesn't have to be grandiose. It's just the simple act of sharing anything to anyone. I remember when, I think I might have mentioned it, after I'd done one retreat, a year went by, they bought the meditation center in Massachusetts, and they sent out a a thing saying, we've got this old building, it needs a lot of repair, so anybody that's got any building skills, carpentry skills, whatever. Uh, We're going to have a work retreat. So we'd like you to come. And and back then, IMS was really poor, and even when you went on a work retreat, you had to pay. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was only half price, but still, it was still, you know. It was was something. And and as soon as I, I, I remember, as soon as I got the notice, it wasn't in my, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know they were doing anything like that. As soon as I got the notice, I just decided, I'm going. And it wasn't, you know, I was in the middle of building houses, but nevertheless, I took three weeks out and just went went off and, and went to this retreat. And as I, I think I mentioned, that I, when I landed in IMS, I got taken to my room, I just dropped into this confident knowing of this is where I belong. And I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody there. It was just a place. But somehow the energy of uh, service, I think, and knowing what I knew then about the Dharma, not a lot, just felt like the right place for me. And that was the beginning of eight years of just being around the retreat centers, maintenance staff and executive director and board member and was the guy was the was the board member responsible for starting the Dharma Seed Tape Library back in eighty seventy eight, nine, something like that. And it's like it's just like that is the most satisfying that has been the most satisfying thing I've done in life. It's just serve the Dharma. Not because I had a lot of wealth or anything, it's just had the heart for it. Just 
wanted to be there to offer what I could. But there are limits to generosity. We find ways of not seeing the need, not recognizing that we have something to offer, feeling uh, like we might be taken advantage of, uh, feeling like uh, you know we don't have enough. We'll 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 be doing without. Uh, and then we just don't understand sometimes that you know generosity is development of our own heart. It's not about fixing someone else's life. It's about contributing what you can, of course. But it's not about, it's primarily about developing your own heart and acting out of compassion for the benefit of others. Those who are generous are well-loved everywhere. Not just because they're generous, but because of their self-confidence, their generosity, their willingness to connect with others. And this capacity grows <coughs> as we practice awareness because we see our own need to be a member of a community. And we see the needs of others in the community. And so we act in this way to care. The third of the factors in caring is loving kindness. And more than just the loving kindness of formal meditation practice, <coughs> may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering, may you be healthy. It's the caring in the same way about, in that way, about everything in life. Everything in life. Your clothes, your neighbor, the trees, the chair, every experience, if we can approach it with that same kind of, may you be happy. Well, chairs aren't happy, but if we can have that kind of, you know, respect for, appreciation of, valuing of, care of, coming from the loving, a loving place of uh, caring for ourselves and caring for others, then all of life becomes a love fest. Well, who would ever think I would say that? <laughs> <laughs> But what, what I see happen, uh, I remember when I was practicing in, uh, in Burma, you know, and practicing a lot of loving-kindness. When I first started practicing loving-kindness, Supandita was teaching me. It was formal, formal practice. And uh, I had just been a couple of years practicing Vipassana with him. And when you practice Vipassana with Sayadaw Bandita, he, he does not affirm or reflect anything back to you that you can hold on to as a sense of self. You know, you cannot have a personal relationship with him. It's just, he is just impersonal, and it's, it's all impersonal. And it's, it's, it's dis disarming. You know, I've known him for a few years, and when I go to see him, it's like, he doesn't know me. He's just like, like who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> and, 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 and even after, you know, even just before he died, a couple, uh, last year, you know, even I, I, I've known him for 40, uh, 30 years. You know, when I would go see him, he would be like, huh, what, what brings you here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just kind of, you know, kind of following up on our relationship, right? You <laughs> 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 don't do that. <laughs> Except when I started doing loving kindness. Now, loving kindness is a practice for relative reality, you know, the conventional, consensual reality that we live in where you acknowledge people. In Vipassana, there's, there's no person there. It's just five aggregates rising due to causes and conditions and unfolding. But when you're dealing with loving-kindness, then you're dealing person-to-person. -person. So part of, the, <laughs> part, of the, uh, part of the practice is to pick a benefactor. First you pick a benefactor. And someone who's been of value to your life, a benefactor, a mentor, or something like that. And, and you have these phrases that you wish for them. May you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering. Or may you uh, live at ease with conditions in life. And you just repeat this over and over again to, you know, with an image of the person or a feeling in the heart or the words or however, however it is that you keep this well-wishing going. So he was my object of love for three months, 
20 hours a day. Three months, one person, 20 hours a day. I fell in love with him. He was such a great guy. And interesting, (laughs) when I would go see him to report about my my loving kindness practice, you know, he was like your favorite uncle. He was like, oh, nice to see you. Come in. (laughs) It was like he was a totally different person. Because he was, he was at that level of, you know, people, personality level, at the relative uh, level, not just the absolute level or the empirical level of the Vipassana practice. It was like day and night, you know, to, to have him, to see him in that way and to have him respond in that way. I was a little bit like, didn't believe it at first, but he was consistently that way while doing loving kindness practice. So when, when, I mean, loving kindness is, is just having that. It's your heart. It's not so much <coughs> the object. It's not who it is or what it is. It's your heart having that relationship, that loving, appreciative, acknowledging relationship towards everything, anyone or everything. And that's really the quality that comes from. To love oneself, why is this the hardest lesson? Why so afraid, you tattered birds? Who has so shorn you of your wings, said that it was bad to fly, selfish to bask, wrong to breathe? How you hop in your broken cages and dare not fly into that gold which lain within holds such store for the world? Oh, not through committees only, but singing your song at dawn, What bird-quiet dawns of guilt and frozen song? Only at death's door, sometimes, do we dare come through. I am in need and love, unbounded, waiting to reciprocate. Loving the world and acting from this place of caring, sensitivity, overcomes your isolation, your alienation from everyone. And then we discover this unlimited, unbounded world, the ability to appreciate and to reciprocate, respond to everyone. So the beauty of caring comes not from preferring this to that, but from this openness to all of life that mindfulness reveals. So caring is the third. The fourth uh, trait, I think, of mindfulness, of awareness, is contentment. Maybe you didn't find any this weekend, but it's growing. <laughs> you know, because what is contentment really? First, it involves coming to know things as they really are. To be content, you have to you have to see what it is that's going on in your own heart, your mind, your environment, and of course, as we open to the fullness of our life experience, we have a lot of reactivity. We have a lot of I like it, I don't like it, I want it, I don't want it, and we get reactive. And so that reactivity has to be tamed through exposure, really. And calmness is the first of the qualities of contentment. To to be content, we have to be able to be with the events of life calmly. Restless distraction, obsessive preoccupation does not lead to peace and serenity, as we have discovered. But discontentment really reveals a kind of resistance to the way things are, to the conditions in our life, people in our life, behaviors, habits, inner and outer. And practice then sees the reactions of aversion, frustration, disappointment, depression, because we're resisting the way things are. As I mentioned earlier, I've had these, in the past I've had this assumption, if I could only get what I want, or if I could only get you to do what I want, then I'd be happy. Do you have that? You see that sometimes? That's not contentment. (laughs) That's not contentment, you know. But it's a big, there's a big shift in contentment, towards contentment, when we realize that 
things are the way they are. And then ask yourself, can I live with that? And often, we can. You know, this is one of the, this is one of the tricks for dealing with pain in the body and even in your practice. You know, it's like, no, 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 struggle, 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 trying to get rid of it, trying to get rid of it. And, but if you ask yourself, if, if, if this is the way it's going to be for the rest of your life, and if it doesn't get any worse, can you live with that? And you go, yeah. <laughs> you know, you just drop your resistance. If we drop our resistance to the way things are, and all, immediately we just calm down. But we kind of have to trick the mind, or we kind of, in that way, using that, that technique, we kind of trick the mind. But once you see how the mind responds to, if this is the way it's going to be forever, could you accept it? And we can. Why? Because we know we don't want to be resistant and struggle forever. <coughs> so it's a, it's a good question to be able to ask yourself, why is it that I am reactive? to the way things are. When you really see, this is the way things are. Pain in the body, restlessness in the mind, liking and disliking. This is the way it is. Can you be okay with that? Verses on the faith mind, author Xing Ming says, if you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. And when the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. We know that. <laughs> We've seen it. I prefer this. I don't want that. And the mind is set up in a, a kind of an internal struggle and we can't find any peace. We don't feel peaceful. We don't feel tranquil. We feel agitated and restless. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. We're not talking politics here. We're talking about the inner politics of coming to terms with your own life. The fifth quality of awareness that is maybe most unexpected is creativity. And it really rests or is a result of the development of these <coughs> four factors of mind. Lightness, pliancy, adaptability, and proficiency. Ordinarily, our personality is pretty stiff. It's pretty rigid. Our thoughts tend towards uh, dogmatism. Our affections and aversions are pretty formed. And we are slow to learn. We're resistant to change. And this is, this is kind of our, you know, fixed personality until we start practice. And as we, pra as we practice and mindfulness, in every moment of mindfulness, there's a dose, a little dab of lightness of mind, pliancy of mind, adaptability of mind, proficiency of mind. Now, lightness of mind is just, can you be lightly with things? Adaptability is, can you adapt from, ple from a pleasant to an unpleasant, from an expected to an unexpected to a hot to a cold to a up to a down can you adapt to the changing conditions of well our life or are you kind of rigid and got to have it this way if there's only one way then the mind is not very adaptable proficiency is can you actually open to the actual experience the flavor of the actual experience or do you kind of put a spin on it and kind of keep it at arm's distance so these qualities of mind are the plasticity factors of the mind. You know, the mind is very plastic, it's malleable. You can, you can change the mind by working with it, and we work with it by awareness, by mindfulness. Like cold clay, you take cold clay, if you just kind of poke it and, you know, crunch it, it's just going to crumble into a bunch of hard pieces. But if you slowly work it and just kind of knead it and you caress it and you just kind of push it and pull it and kind of play with it, warm it up and kind of caress it. You know? then, the, then the clay becomes very pliable, malleable. You can do anything you want. You can make it take any shape, any form, stretch it thin, whatever you want. Your mind is like that. You just kind of poke the mind and kind of rough with the mind. You're just going to break it. It's just going to react. It's going to get brittle. Brittle mind. But if you caress it, if you warm it up, 
if you play with it, if you give it some attention, and you kind of, with your mind, then it becomes very pliable, very light, very adaptable. You can adapt, it can, it can accommodate anything. These are the plasticity factors of the mind. When, as we're practicing awareness, and we come upon, as you've seen, things that you're holding on to. You're holding on to memories, you're holding on to pain, you're holding on to judgment, self-judgment, you're holding on to fear. We're holding on to all kinds of stuff. And gradually we're seeing it and learning how to let go. Do you think it takes energy to hold on? I mean, if you're going to hold on to anything, it takes energy, right? If you're going to hold on to a child's hand, if you're going to hold on to your own finger, if you're going to hold on to the door, if you're going to hold on to the steering wheel, it takes energy. And we've been holding on to some of these ideas, these concepts, these self-image, confidence, fear, memories, for decades. Decades. Is it any wonder that we're exhausted? Okay. So what happens? As we open the mind, carefully, gently, softly, caressingly, we open the mind, we come in contact with some pain, some holding somewhere, reflected in the body, found in the mind, when we can actually let go of that fear, let go of that self-image, let go of that shame, let go of that humiliation, let go of that disappointment, whatever it is, when we can let go of it, the energy that's been holding it in place for decades is now available to live in the present moment. That's where the energy comes to keep on this journey. Because we let go. Everything we let go of releases the energy for us to use in our practice to further develop the mind. I know this sounds kind of simplistic, but it's true. It's like every time you let go, every time you release anything, there's more energy, and it's energy in the mind. Now, with the energy in the mind, the mind is much more you know, flexible, pliable, it's not stuck. And it can accommodate anything. It can, it can, it can be impartially, you know, kind of present with very exciting or very boring experiences and enjoy them both. It can respond to anything. Because you have the energy, you have the flexibility to see things as they are. not easy to let go because we have to confront or have to feel the pain of holding on. And so I've, I've said before that comfort is not the goal. If, if, if comfort's your goal in practice, you, you definitely won't confront pain. <coughs> Excuse me. But as we learn about ourselves, we learn to let go, this energy all becomes available. The mind becomes pliable. The mind becomes adaptable. And we can creatively face life. Not stuck in dogmatic beliefs or fixed opinions. Change with as necessary, when necessary, for the benefit of self and others. Where we can adapt. Where our perceptions are accurate and our uh, responses are wise and compassionate. This allows for a life of creativity, beauty, where we can appreciate and acknowledge everything. <clears throat> so in conclusion, I'd just like to say that these traits of a mindfulness or a mindful life or life of awareness, our awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment, and creativity, they arise in every moment of mindfulness, but we often don't see them growing until they become, you know, until there's some, some momentum. I don't know if he wrote this or if he had it translated or what, but he has a poem that he read called Freedom. Adorned with the garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, dwell only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, dwell only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, 
soft rapture from a life of simplicity, dwell only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.